You're listening to audio from Seven Mile Road Church in Waltham, Massachusetts, just outside of Boston. If you'd like to check out more of our resources or learn more about our church, please visit sevenmilewaltham.com. It's almost impossible to overestimate the power of encouragement. I'm sure we could go around this room and you could tell stories of times when you were down and discouraged and sorrowful and an encouraging conversation came at just the right time in your life, right? You were feeling distraught, but then... This word lifted you up from a friend or a family member, maybe even, maybe even a stranger or something that you read. A good friend knows when to speak correction, when to give advice, there's a time for those things, and when to speak words of encouragement. I saw this on display a few weeks ago at one of my son's Little League baseball games. They were playing a great team. And the team was leading by five runs. But then something happened. I don't know what the coach said, but they started rallying. And they came back and tied the game. And they were playing so well. I was, just as a dad observing, I was, I was sure they were going to win. And the kids were pumped, right? We can actually win this thing. And then in the bottom of the ninth, right, the other team got some hits and won with a walk-off. And you could see the discouragement. The excitement of this, you know, ready position, went to this. <sighs> Gloves were thrown on the ground, right? They were understandably discouraged. There were tears of disappointment shed. And as they walked off the field and met their, their coach, I kind of went over and there's always the post-game huddle and and their coach gathered them around. And you know what the coach didn't say or didn't do, right? You know what he didn't do if he was a good coach. He didn't say, listen, let's talk about all the errors you made. And there were errors that were, were made, right? He, he didn't say, here's all the missed opportunities. Here's all the, the failures, right? There, there'd be practice and there'd be time to address some of those things. Instead, he just encouraged them. You fought hard. You, you came back. From a five-run deficit, you closed that gap, and we almost won. You guys played a great game. And you could just see it, right? It seems so simple, but you could see the discouragement sort of just melt away. And by the time everybody, you know, met up with their parents and was walking to their car, they weren't thinking about the game anymore. They were saying, what are, what's for dinner, right? The power of encouragement. Well, in our passage this morning, 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 22, Peter's a lot like an encouraging coach here. He's just finished, if you've remembered, if you've been with us the past two weeks, a pretty demanding uh, section of teaching on authority and submitting to governing authorities. It was demanding back then, and it is certainly demanding for us now. What does it mean to submit to governing authorities as Christians? What, is it, what does submission in relationships look like in the home, even when the situation may not be ideal? It was hard teaching. And if you're like me, you listened to those sermons from Pastor Clint over the last two weeks, and you thought, my goodness, there are certainly ways where I have failed to obey God's word in this. 
either in heart or in action. I've not walked in humble submission to the Lord as I should. And here's the reality. Even if you didn't immediately feel that conviction over the last two two weeks, the reality is living a life that honors Jesus and commends him to the world around us is difficult. We shouldn't pretend like it's easy. So we need encouragement. We need encouragement to press on and the grace to endure. And I think that's what Peter is doing here. He's always been encouraging throughout his letter, but there's a specific pastoral tone here that seems to to come to the surface. Now, it doesn't mean there aren't exhortations in this passage. You heard them as we read that we'll consider. There certainly are, but the overall tone is press on, press on. It's one of encouragement. And we see this in in three three places in the text. So if you're taking notes, here's where we're headed this morning. What are the encouragements for our journey? First, Christian, you were called to blessing. Verse 9 says, bless, for to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. Number two, Christian, you have a hope to be shared. Verse 15, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks for a reason for the hope that is in you. Then number three, Christian, Christ has suffered for you. Verse 18, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Those are the encouragements. You were called to blessing. You have a hope to be shared, and Christ has suffered for you. You. So let's move on here and be encouraged by Peter this morning. Christian, you were called to blessing. So we read in verse 8, Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. So here's what Peter's doing here. After all that teaching on submission and authority, he's sort of tying up loose ends. So he says, finally. That points us back to what he said. So he's saying, we've covered governing authorities, we've covered the home, we've talked about what those relationships look like. And now, all of you, church, Christians, you are to live in this way because you have been called by God. That's Peter's formula. Not you do so you can become something, but here's who you are, therefore here's how you live. And and the way he explains that is he describes this culture in the church that is marked by blessing. He says, have unity of mind. Meaning a, a common purpose as Christians. Unity in our diversity around who Jesus is and what he's done for us. As Christians, we are together not around some other affinity or hobby or interests or background or ethnicity. We are together around Jesus who has saved us. So we are to be unified in our singular singular purpose of exalting Jesus and commending him to the world. Have unity of mind. Have sympathy with one another. And this word is, is unique to this verse in the New Testament. And it gets at this idea of not just you know, feeling bad for someone, but feeling this and sharing the same emotions with one another so that you can respond with sensitivity. That's what Peter's saying here. Think of the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 12, verse 15, we're to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. That's to define our relationship as Christians. We're to show brotherly love. 
We're a family. You heard Pastor Clint mention that this morning, a church where neighbors become family. We didn't come up with that. That's a New Testament idea. And families, you know this, have disagreements and challenges and there's messiness. But at the end of the day, we say we are family together. We can't just write one another off. So we show brotherly love. We're tender-hearted. You could say compassionate toward one another. This, this word for tender-hearted here gets at this idea of generosity and compassion that you feel deep down in your guts. Right? That's a New Testament word here. And we're to have a humble mind, not to think too highly of ourselves, but to live lowly with one another. We're not to repay evil for evil, to retaliate. And here's what, what Peter does to sum all of this up. He gives us one word to sum up that, that list there. He says we are to bless. Peter said, how could you sum all of that up? We could say blessing. A culture of blessing in the church. Now who does this remind you of? That list of characteristics. Reminds you of Jesus, right? And, and when the church experiences difficulty and opposition and struggle, and we are, we're suffering as, as Christians in this world... The temptation, Peter knows, the temptation is toward bitterness, disunity, and, and retaliation. But Peter says we cannot respond that way. We've been called by Jesus, so we must respond with humility, with tender-hearted blessing. So here's the logic of, of verse 9. If you're just going to zero in on verse 9. You have been blessed or called by Jesus. Therefore, you are to bless one another now. And one day, finally, you will receive the ultimate blessing when you meet Jesus face to face. That word obtain in verse 9 refers to an inheritance. So Peter is saying, listen, here's the logic of what the church should look like. Past blessing that you've received in Christ current blessing as you live with one another and as you look to the future of blessing when you receive your inheritance and meet Jesus face to face. Christian, you have been called to blessing, past, present, future. Right? So that's what Peter's saying here. That's the culture of blessing. But if that's the culture that's to define us as God's people and our relationships with one another, how do we bring that blessing to one another? And here's where Peter refers to one of his favorite Psalms in the Old Testament. He's already done this in 1 Peter. But Psalm 34, look at verse 10. Whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So he's quoting the Old Testament, Psalm 34. And here's what he's saying. This is not a, a formulaic guarantee. He's not saying, listen, it, as long as you keep your tongue from evil, as long as you don't say bad things, it's guaranteed that you're going to live a life of ease. That's not what he's saying here. It's a general principle that if you speak in a way that blesses instead of deceives as God's people, you will live a blessed life as God's people. Now here's what's interesting about this. Do you notice the how? So he's described, here's what life should look like in the church. Here's the culture of blessing. Here's the how. And the first thing he mentions is our speech in quoting Psalm 34. Right? 
Think of how, how countercultural this is today. He's saying, you, he, Peter's saying, if you want to live a life of blessing, watch your words. Make sure your words are not evil and deceitful. Now, our world is marked by biting and deceitful speech. We are defined by it, right? In fact, if you cut all of the biting and uh, deceitful speech tomorrow, social media would just tank, right? No more Twitter. Twitter's not all bad, but a lot of it is, right? Well, church, we as the people of God, we can't be defined by that. We can't be a part of cancel culture, for example. Peter says that's contrary. Harsh words, deceitful speech to cut others down. I remember the story I read a few years ago of a woman named Justine Sacco. It was a very popular story, and she had posted a joke on Twitter that she shouldn't have posted, right? It's a lesson there. Your words have consequences. It was an inappropriate joke. She had 170 followers on Twitter. She posted this, and then she got on a plane from London to to Cape Town, South Africa. And on that flight, 11 hours, while her phone was off, the tweet went viral, And tens of thousands of people began to publicly shame her. She lost her job as a communications director. People who who didn't know her at all were saying all sorts of horrific things about her. Her life as she knew it was ruined. She was experiencing depression and stress from the incident, as you can imagine, right? And do, do you see the irony there of how our world works when it comes to speech Biting speech instead of blessing. Someone says something that they shouldn't say. You could say evil speech. And how does the world respond? By shaming that person with more evil speech. And it's this back and forth of poisonous talk. Peter says that is not the way we should be as Christians. And if we want to live as we are called, as those who are blessed and bless others, we must watch our words. You remember that ridiculous poem when you were a kid? Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. In case you were wondering, that is not true. (laughs) Words are painful. In fact, Proverbs 12, 18 described harsh words like sword thrusts into us. They cut deep and the scars last. And so this is why Peter prioritizes this for us as we think of what it means as he wants to encourage us to live a life of blessing, is to watch our, our words. I wonder, I imagine that Peter would be remembering his own foolish words as he wrote this. You know the story of Peter? On the night that Jesus was betrayed, Peter was asked, Are you one of the followers of Christ? Then out of the overflow of his heart, his mouth spoke and he denied his Savior. Not once, not twice, but three times. He was deceitful. His words were evil. And all of us are Peter, right? We've, we've forgotten our calling to blessing and to bless others. We've resorted to, to, to cursing others, either with our words or even in our hearts. Instead of turning away from evil, we've turned towards it. Instead of seeking peace, we've torn others down. 
and brought harm. And here, here's the good news of the gospel. There's grace for us. Do you remember how Peter was restored? I, it's one of my favorite passages in all of the New Testament. Jesus has cooked Peter breakfast on the shore after a night of fishing. And John 21 says this. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time. He was remembering his denial. Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. And later on at the end of verse 19, Jesus tells him, follow me. You see how Jesus brings healing to Peter's deceitful speech, Peter's evil denial of him through restorative words of blessing. And so from this point on, Peter devotes his life to using his words to bless others. Not perfectly, but faithfully. So Peter writes to us here as one who has experienced this. So Christian, you are called to blessing. We're to bless one another with our words. So ask yourselves, we should ask ourselves today, as those, as those who have received the blessing of Christ, who in my life needs to be encouraged today? Right? Or what correction do I need to lovingly give to someone else? What words of, of comfort can I bring to someone who is suffering Christ has blessed us, so we are to bless others. That's encouragement number one. Then number two, Christian, you have a hope to be shared. So Peter reminds us as he goes on that even if we live a life of blessing one another in the church, it's still going to be a messy life, right? Remember, the original audience of Peter's letter was experiencing this increasing opposition. It wasn't full-on persecution, that was still about 100 years out, but it was this pressure on what it means to be a Christian from the outside. And they needed this encouragement not to lose hope. So we read on in verse 13. Now who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. I love this. This is such a hope-filled view that Peter has to this opposition. He's saying, listen, church, even as you live a life of blessing among one another, you're still going to be opposed by the world. You're still going to be ridiculed as you commit your life to Jesus. But since you fear God above all, and, and he will bless you and take care of you, there's no reason to fear. And here's what happens. That opposition you will face will become an opportunity to bear witness to Jesus. It becomes an opportunity to share the hope that is within you. 
Now this passage, in verse 15 in particular, is one of the foundational verses for what we would call apologetics. Defending the faith. Giving a defense of the faith. And we see this practice sort of formalized, really from the birth of the church in the New Testament. We see this at Peter's first sermon at Pentecost. He's not just preaching, he is defending Christ from the scriptures in the Old Testament to his hearers. He's reasoning with them. Paul was a master at this. The Apostle Paul, his missionary journeys, he would first enter a synagogue, open up the scriptures, reason there. Then he would enter into a marketplace, depending on where he was. And he'd engage with the philosophical, theological discussion of the day. And he would reason with them and defend the faith, the Christian faith, from the scriptures. He'd give a defense of the faith. That's rooted in verse 15 here. Now, I'm a Christian in large part because of the work of an apologist, a modern-day apologist named C.S. Lewis. Most of us have heard of C.S. Lewis. I remember in high school, I was a Christian, a new Christian, and I was wrestling with my faith in part because I had some friends who were atheists and were sort of poking holes into Christianity, especially around what happened around 9-11 and how could God let that happen, all these sorts of things. And my youth pastor pointed me toward mere Christianity and my faith was strengthened by the arguments and, and reason. Praise God for apologists, right? But notice this here. As Peter gives this, and this is like the foundational verse for apologetics, notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, guys, all right, listen, I need to talk to all of my intellectually sharp apologists for a moment, and the rest of the church, you can just sit this one out. There's no separate office of apologist in the church. Now, praise God that there are some who are clearly gifted to write and speak and and into this ministry of defending the faith in a public way, absolutely. But this foundational verse in the New Testament on defending the faith, giving a reason for the hope that is in you, is addressed to every single Christian. It's to all of us. You may not have the theological mind of the Apostle Paul. You might not have the education of C.S. Lewis. But take it from the words of a Galilean fisherman. You have a hope to be shared. And so the practical outworking of of this is going to look different in your context where you work and live and play in your, your family life. But Peter does encourage us here with three general principles about defending the faith, about giving a reason for the hope that is in us. And we find all of these in verse 15. First, he says we need a worshipful heart. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. That is so important that he starts with the heart and not with the mind. One of the most dangerous things you and I can do is gain a bunch of intellectual knowledge about God and learn all of the arguments for the existence of God and the reliability of the Bible, all of those things. Have all of that knowledge but in our hearts be completely far from God. Do you realize Jesus' harshest words in his earthly ministry were reserved for men like that? He says of the Pharisees, quoting the prophet Isaiah, This people honors me with their lips. They say all the right things, but their heart is far from me. Now this biblical concept of, of the heart is, refers to the core of, of who we are. It gets 
much deeper than, than uh, as we think of the heart today, we think of it either as a, the physical organ or this sort of like emotional, merely emotional, touchy-feely sort of romantic sense. But in the Bible, the heart was the core of an individual. Everything stems from the heart. Desires, values, all of those things that drive us. And Peter is saying, listen, I want you to defend the faith. I want you to give a reason for the hope that is in you, but you need to make sure at the heart level you were settled on this. Christ the Lord is holy, and he alone is worthy of all glory and honor and praise. Proverbs 4.23 says this, Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. John Flavel wrote a great book called Keeping the Heart on this verse. And he says this, a person may go with a heedless, this is old, so just like 1600, so just bear with me. But a person may go with a heedless spirit from ordinance to ordinance. So think a careless spirit from church activity, religious activity to, to another. Abide all their days under the choicest teaching, yet never be improved by them for heart neglect is a leak in the bottom. No heavenly influence, however rich, abide in that soul. So we need to evaluate our hearts. We need to keep our hearts and assure and, and constantly orient our hearts toward Jesus. You say, how do we do that? Well, that's another sermon, but I will say this. We must constantly be coming to Jesus with everything. All our sins, all our failures, confessing to him, living in community, not just thinking about our outward actions, but thinking about where do those thoughts, desires, and actions come from and bringing our hearts to bear before the Lord who loves us. And listen, he already knows the darkness of your heart. He already knows. So if you're fearful to confess anything to him, remember that he already knows and he still loves you. So we keep our hearts by coming to Jesus and constantly reorienting our minds to say, no, my purpose is to honor Christ the Lord as holy. From there then, second, we need a ready mind. So we need a, a worshipful heart and a ready mind. It goes on to say, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. So are you ready? I'm just, ask yourself, am I ready to give a defense for the hope that is in me when the opportunity arises? Have you noticed how this never comes at like times that are convenient for you? I was at the ball field the other day pushing the two-year-old at the playground. Sitting there, and I'll be honest, it was a Friday night. And I know I'm a pastor, I'm not supposed to say this, but I'm just going to, this is real talk. I was like, I don't really want to talk to anybody about Jesus. I just want to hang out with my family, right? I know that's wrong, but that's the truth. So I'm pushing, pushing, you know, Jude on the swing, and the dad's next to me, and the kid's the same age, and we start talking, and you know, work and all the normal, you know, surface level stuff. And then, you know, this is easy for me because it's like, what do you do? It's like, oh, okay, here we go. So the conversation turns spiritual, very intelligent man. And he starts to tell me, well, here's what I think uh, Jesus' main purpose was. And I'm like, here we go, right? And he tells me, and it was very interesting. And it was something that was, I sort of heard nuances before, but I had, I had never heard before. And then he asked me, what do you think about that? Right? It's like, there's your opportunity right here. Now, I, that rarely happens. Some of you are like, wow, that would be, that's great. That very rarely happens, but it did in God's providence. 
Now, you know what I couldn't say? I couldn't say, listen, give me eight hours, okay? And I can whip up a, a decent sermon on biblical Christology, and then you just sit still and I'll, I'll give it to you, right? No, I, I, I had to be prepared. And so I sort of fumbled through the answer as, as best I could. Now, in that situation, God and his grace, we were able to exchange information and, you know, so we can continue talking. But, friends, you're never, like, able to pr- truly prepare, right? It happens at the, the playground. It happens at the dinner table when kids ask questions about what's going on in the world. Right? It happens in the break room. It happens when you're walking the dog. Peter says, listen, always be prepared, Always be prepared. And here's the connection. If your heart is kept and thrilled with Jesus, it's going to be a lot easier to give a defense for Jesus when that time comes. See the connection? So a worshipful heart and then a a ready mind. Now, please don't mishear this. What, What I'm not saying and what Peter's not saying is you need to have all of the answers. You need, to, you need to read all of the books on apologetics. You need to know all of the arguments for the existence of God and, you know, presuppositional versus evidential apologetics. You don't even know what I just said, right? You have to do that. That's not what Peter's saying. In fact, what I love about this is he personalizes this. You see that? He says, be ready to give a reason for the hope that is in you. So if you feel, man, I don't really know how to talk about Jesus, can I give you a really practical tip? Learn how to share your story of what Jesus has done in your life well. You know, I don't know the answer to that question. That's a great question you have about Jesus. But can I tell you what Jesus has done for me? Can I give a reason for for the hope that is in me? And as you share your story, your testimony, weave in the truth of the gospel. Christ, sin, repentance, faith, restoration. And tell them that offer is for you too. And you will be, you might not be an apologist with published books, but you will be a wonderful defender of the faith who gives a reason for the hope that is in you. Be ready. And then lastly, he says we need gentleness and respect. Worshipful heart, ready mind, and with gentleness and respect. Now this may be the hardest part of this in, in our age. Right? We live in a culture that says, if you disagree with my ideas, you must hate me as a person. It doesn't matter that you're respectful or kind. We just don't know how to disagree with others with, with gentleness and respect. But we should model this as Christians. We should be leading in this. And on, on one side, we're tempted to sort of soften the hard edges of, of Christianity. Right? That's a real temptation to sort of make it more palatable. And just listen, if you do that, sort of keep Christianity private or, or never talk about the difficult things so that you'll never offend, you will never share the hope that is within you. People might know that you're connected to Christianity, but you won't be faithful in that. But on the other end of the spectrum, we see a, a competing idea, and our temptation is to demonize that person. So we we don't have to lovingly engage with them. We just throw out their whole idea. And neither of those are optional for us as Christians. Here's what the New Testament advocates for us as Christians. We are to be so bold as to faithfully speak the truths of the gospel. Sin, hell, repentance, Christ, faith, joy in Jesus, all of those things. Yet... We are, we are to be so gentle and respectful 
that the offense is not us, but the cross of Christ. You see that? Jesus' life, death, and resurrection does not need any help from us to be offensive to this world. Right? So we are to take this gospel to bear witness to the hope that is within us with gentleness and respect. And as a result, as, as we do this, verse 16, our conscience is, is clear. Because we've been faithful to what God has called us to do. And any accusations that come against us will prove groundless, maybe not today, but when they stand before God, the only audience that matters. Right? So Christian, you have a hope to be shared so, so do so with a worshipful heart, a ready mind, and with gentleness and respect. And then lastly, Christian, Christ has suffered for you. So we see we've, we've been called to blessing, we have a hope to be shared, and Christ has suffered for us. Verse 17, it's better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Now Peter's reminding his readers here, right? He's, he's doing this time and time again. If you live for God, if you pursue Jesus, you're going to experience suffering. Right? You'll suffer opposition from this world. And that's a major question that many people have about Christianity. Let's be honest, we wrestle with it as well. How can we pursue goodness, live a good life, seek to love others, and still struggle and still face opposition and suffering in this world. And Peter doesn't give this philosophical answer here, though I think those can be helpful. What Peter does is say, let me point you to Jesus, the suffering Savior. That's the answer he gives to that question. Verse 18, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh and made alive in the spirit. This is one of the most concise summaries of the work of Christ in all the Bible. Before Jesus is our example in suffering, he is our suffering Savior. Okay? So don't mishear this. Peter's not just saying, hey, go be like Jesus. That's true. But he emphasizes the substitutionary nature of Christ's death and says, before he's an example, he, here's what he did for you. He suffered once for sins, meaning there's no longer any additional sacrifice required for our salvation. There's no longer any additional work of righteousness that you and I can accomplish or anyone else can accomplish for our salvation. Our salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. So if you're here and you're wondering, okay, I'm not a Christian, but how do you become one? Do I follow Jesus' example? Not first. First, you recognize that your only hope in life and death is that you are not your own and that you are a sinner and Christ has suffered in your place. He's taken your sin upon his shoulders and died the death you and I deserve to die and defeated sin and death so that all who believe in him in exchange get his righteousness. That's what verse 18 emphasizes here. He became our substitute for us. He died that we might live. He became unrighteous, though he was without sin, that we might have his righteousness. Peter's saying this is foundational to our faith. And then it is a constant reminder to you that when you suffer as a Christian, it shouldn't be strange. Because your Lord and Savior Jesus Christ has suffered likewise. It is first our salvation, then our example to suffer. 
Now, then in verse 19, just be honest, things get a little weird, okay? Peter then ties this idea of, of the life, death, and resurrection of Christ to the days of Noah. Verse 19 says this, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Now, he there's Jesus. Because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience had waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Baptism, this gets weirder, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers, having been subject to him. Now Martin Luther, the brilliant theologian reformer, said, my translation, I have no idea what Peter is saying here, right? And we are going to put an article in the Weekly Sync this week that gives you some other ideas because I am not sure. But here's what I think is happening here. I think Peter is talking, what he's talking about this in the days of Noah is he's referring to the people who ridiculed Noah and his family as he was building the ark and preparing for the flood, Okay? So Noah was trusting the Lord, he's placing his faith in, in God, that he will deliver them from judgment, and these people are ridiculing him. And it's a parallel to modern day opposition to Christianity. And he's saying that Jesus, or essentially the gospel, was preached to those people through Noah. Okay. Now Paul says this of Abraham in Galatians, but Peter has also hinted at this, if you remember in chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 through 11, concerning this salvation, concerning the gospel, the prophets, Old Testament, who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ, that's an important phrase, the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. So what Peter's saying is, remember when I talked about the Spirit of Christ through the Old Testament prophets? That's what was happening in Noah. In a sense, not the full understanding of the gospel that we have, but the gospel was being proclaimed to them and that they could repent. They could get on the boat, but they, instead they mocked. And so they were judged for it. And now, those people who rejected repentance and experienced the judgment of the flood are awaiting final judgment. Spirits in prison. Now, if this is true, really what Peter is saying here is it's a reminder to us of a few things. First, it's always been true that the world is opposed to God's people. It, is, it should not be a surprise to us when we face opposition to the world. We see it in the prophets, we see it in the days of Noah, we see it in the early church, and we see it in various ways today in our world. Right? But also, God has always been faithful to rescue his people through judgment, from judgment. Right? He's making this gospel connection. Then he goes on and he draws a, a parallel between Noah and his family being rescued through the waters and, and the flood and baptism. Now there's a tough phrase, right? Because it says, baptism say, now saves you. And if you remember a few weeks ago when we had a baptism, I literally stood up here and said the words, baptism does not save you. I said it is an outward sign of an inward reality. So am, am I wrong here? Am I at odds with, with Peter here? No, I don't, I don't think so. We know he doesn't mean 
that physical washing of water achieves your salvation because that would be completely contrary to what he just said in verse 18. Christ alone saves us. And notice right after he says baptism saves you, he adds not the removal of dirt from the flesh, and here's the key phrase, but an appeal to God for a good conscience. He's essentially defining baptism for us here though a strange way for us grammatically, he's saying it is an outward expression of an inward appeal to God from the conscience by faith for cleansing. Okay? Baptism says, listen, I trust in Christ alone, his sufficient life, his death, his resurrection to cleanse me from my sin, to make me clean, that I might stand before God in righteousness. Noah's ark building did not accomplish his salvation, right? God did. It was an expression of faith in God to save. Likewise, baptism does not achieve our salvation as a work, but it is an expression of our faith in Christ who saves, okay? Now, how does all of this, 18 through 22, how does it encourage us? Christian, Christ has suffered for you. He has dealt with something far greater than any earthly suffering you're experiencing now or will experience or have experienced. He has dealt with the greatest problem. He's redeemed us, saved us, adopted us. We've been made alive for eternity. He's defeated ultimate and eternal suffering so that we can endure present light and momentary suffering and opposition. So we are not to be surprised by opposition and suffering. Instead, we're to trust in Christ, our substitute, who has suffered for us, and we're to follow his example. Okay? So in closing, as we, as we consider all of these things, we've been called to blessing. We have a hope to be shared. Christ has suffered for us. I want you to ask yourself, where do you go when you're discouraged in the journey of life? Do you, do you try to escape by distracting yourself with entertainment? You, do you try to, to numb the discouragement with earthly things, food or, or drink, whatever it may be? Do you, do you question God's goodness towards you in moments of discouragement? Do you get in a rut of constantly grumbling about how hard life is and how unique your suffering situation is? Or... Do you encourage yourself with the realities of the gospel? I'm called and blessed by Jesus. I'm, I'm filled with an overflowing hope that is to be shared. I'm redeemed and rescued and cleansed by Jesus who suffered for me. Church, my prayer for, for us is that it would be the latter. That we would grow in preaching the gospel of encouragement to ourselves with these truths and prepare our hearts to share it with others. Let's pray together.